Welcome to Drupal Easy Podcast, episode 231. My name is Mike Anello, and on today's podcast, first up will be an interview by Ryan Price with Michael Myers from Tag One Consulting, where they will be talking about something really, really cool called YJS, which is an open source project that enables real-time collaborative editing. And if that sounds familiar, it's basically an open source version of the engine behind Google Docs. So that's a really cool framework that Tag One has been working on. And uh, you know, it's a really interesting interview uh, about what Tag One has been doing with that. They also talk about Goose, which is another open source project that Tag One has been working on. And that's a load testing tool. So definitely check out um, this interview with Ryan Price and Michael Myers. After that, I sit down with Dane Powell from Acquia to talk about Acquia BLT and all the cool things that Acquia's build, load, and test tool. I always get the acronym wrong. Uh, but everything that that cool tool does, you'll learn that it's not specific to Acquia hosting and that it's got a really cool feature, a really cool command built into it that allows you to not commit dependencies to your repository, but still create an artifact with all your dependencies that can be easily pushed to a repository. So very cool stuff. So sit back and enjoy the Drupal Easy podcast. Hello and welcome to the Drupal Easy podcast. I am your host for today, Ryan Price. And with me via audio conference, as is pretty much everybody these days, is uh, old acquaintance Michael Myers, who is the managing director of Tag One Consulting. And uh, Tag One, people probably know in the Drupal world if you've been around a little while, as I, I consider Tag One anyway to be like a Drupal performance, you know, consultancy, but I'm sure you do a lot of other things. So welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thanks, Ryan. Really appreciate you having me. A long time listener, first time caller. Um, <laughs> I, I think Tagwon is, is definitely most well known for our work in the Drupal world. Uh, we're the second uh, largest all-time contributor to Drupal behind Acquia, uh, which is a billion dollar company now. Uh, so, you know, we've contributed most of the performance and scalability work, uh, co-authored BigPipe, uh, created PageCache, Dynamic PageCache, MemCache, et cetera, um, but also Theme API and work with amazing folks like Moshe Weitzman, who created Drush and Migrate. Uh, so we have the largest concentration of core contributors and core maintainers like uh, Catch and Platch and Fabian X. Um, and... Uh, do you know, everything from full stack development for our own clients to, you know, partnering with platform companies like Acquia, uh, Pantheon, Contigix, and other agencies, you know, like FFW to do specialty work like performance and scalability. So, awesome. So, um, you have been working on some interesting projects lately, and we are going to be talking about one in particular, which is called. YJS. So my understanding of this is that you can add real-time collaboration, text editing, but maybe beyond that to web applications. And, you know, this is a Drupal podcast. So we'll talk a little bit about Drupal, but 
it sounds like it's flexible. It can be used in a number of different situations. So maybe can you just start by giving us the like high level overview? What is YJS and how how did it come about? Like what problem were you trying to solve with creating it? Yeah, it's, it's definitely the coolest thing I've worked on in a long time. It was created by uh, Kevin Yans as a university uh, research, a dissertation project. Um, and uh, collaboration is becoming an important part of how we work. You know, pretty much all the time I'm in Google Docs with team members or clients working on things. We're in Slack doing asynchronous communication or, you know, uh, whiteboarding. And so... Um, you know, we, we thought about how that's becoming an, an integral part of our lives and applications. Um, and we had a client come along, uh, a top 10 Fortune 500 company. We're building their internet using Drupal, uh, amongst other technologies. And uh, they wanted to have real-time collaboration as part of this. And so it was an awesome opportunity to integrate it into Drupal. Um, like you said, it, it, it can enable uh, real-time collaboration in any application. It's basically, you know, if you have structured data, you know, you have a 3D modeling program, um, a whiteboarding program, list building, you know, whatever, you can make that application collaborative, you know. Uh, in the context of a CMS like Drupal, uh, it is uh, layout building. You know, you could build page layouts in real time together where, you know, as you move things, other people see them move. Um, and uh, editing, you know, you, you know, you can create docs and do your editing workflow uh, just like you would in something like Google Docs. And, you know, it has all of those features uh, and it's a completely open source implementation. So, you know, anybody can take it and use it. It's written in JavaScript, so it runs anywhere. It's a really light addition. It's, it's surprisingly a small amount of code um, and it could even be run serverless. It, you know, it supports both client server models. Um, which have advantages as far as like uh, reliability and uh, performance in some respects, but um, you know you can use it in a peer-to-peer model uh, with with no additional software. We're working with uh, Automatic and and the Gutenberg core developers there to do. Okay, a, a... <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna stop you now because there's probably a certain percentage of people that have heard everything they want to hear and they can go tune out and go check it out. So. Um, I'm assuming, is this something we can check out on like GitHub or something like that? Yeah. Um, you can go to yjs.dev, uh, or tagwall.com slash yjs and all sorts of blog posts and code for you to dig into. So let's, let's stop and unpack some of what you just said, <laughs> cause there was, there was a lot going on in there. Um, so, so first of all, like, let's say, you know, I have a, a Drupal site and, you know, especially in the age of quarantine, somebody comes along and they say, we want, you know, people to be able to, you know, an, an editor and a technical reviewer to be able to look at this article, you know, at the same time and, and work on it. Or like, you know, maybe two developers are working on some documentation, like you said, an intranet um, or something along those lines. So two people want to be working on the same node at the same time. And we don't necessarily, you know, want them to be able to, to have to like copy and paste stuff into Google Docs and then back into our editor. The formatting gets messed up. You know, there's probably a lot of different reasons why that's a bad idea. So what's what's sort of like 
you know, a, a simplified process for getting something like this set up. Is there a module for me to install or is there stuff that I have to install on my server? And then also a module, like how do, how do, what's the basic setup for something like this? Sure. Uh, unfortunately, the, the Drupal implementation is not uh, open source yet. That was done for a private company and we're working with them to go through their open source process. Um, the, the WordPress stuff is all open source from the start, but um, well, let's take it. Let's take it from the WordPress angle. Then let's say, let's say that I do have a WordPress site and I just want to integrate that and maybe they'll give someone an example of what this, what life could be like with a YJS integration. Yeah. Basically there's a, a branch, there's a module that you enable. Um, and, uh, that's pretty much it. It's, it's, it's that simple. You know, you download the branch, the development branch that supports this, enable the YJS module, uh, and then you and other people can edit the same nodes. Um, so basically, you know, th there's a permission component, you know, uh, who can edit, you know, can I just view, can I edit, can I comment, um, you know, just like, uh, in Google Docs, you can have different permissions for different users um, for each document. And so I might be able to go through and, and comment and make uh, suggestions, or I might be able to go through and make edits to your document. And, you know, with track changes, you see the edits I've made and where I've made them, and you can accept or reject them. You can reply to my comments. Um, you know, you can see where I am in the document, where my cursor is, what I have highlighted. You know everything you'd expect in a in a collaborative text editing experience. Sure. So so you said you know like in, in theory this is going to integrate with Drupal. It's just something like let's say I have an existing site and I already have you know CK Editor WYSIWYG. Do I have to get rid of CK Editor? Like what does that look like? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, right now we have bindings or integrations with specific editors. Uh, CK Editor isn't one of the ones we have integrated with yet. We have uh, Quill, Monaco, Ace, uh, TipTap. Um, the one we integrated with Drupal is ProseMirror. So uh, in this particular case, if you wanted to leverage what's out there, you'd have to integrate uh, ProseMirror with, with Drupal or use our implementation, our integration. Um, in the future, you know, we'd love to have a, a CK Editor implementation, and it's it's easy to add it to any editor, you know, especially an open source one, uh, more of the heavy lifting is, you know, integrating it with the application, you know, user controls, permissions, things like that. Um, and then, you know, since this is JavaScript, I assume there's some sort of a node client that has to run on a server somewhere like, you know, in order for me to get this working on, let's say, a, like a shared hosting, or maybe sometimes even in an enterprise world, you know, they, they know about JavaScript and maybe there are node applications running, but, you know, anytime I want to turn on a new service, I have to, I have to let somebody know, I have to open a firewall port. I have to, you know, open a ticket with DevOps and say, Hey, I want this, this application to be running. So can you tell me a little bit about what's the backend requirement for something like this? Sure. Um, yeah, I think you nailed it. There's, there's two aspects. There's the client server model, uh, and that has. Uh, advantages in the sense that, you know, every, you know, every client can communicate with the server. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, there's some security advantages for a company. Um, but, uh, you know, so you would need to set up a, a Node.js server to broker the client server communication. Um, it also has some advantages in how it saves uh, updates and drafts. You know, in, as you type a character, 
literally every character is saved to the Node.js server. So there's a little uh, more reliability from that standpoint. The uh, Even the P2P implementation, though, requires a server. Every, every P2P or almost every P2P application requires some sort of signaling server to connect the peers. So, you know, if you're editing a document and I open it, you know, how do we know about each other? You need a signaling server to connect the two peers uh, and, and hand off that relationship. And so... Right. Yeah. The authentication is really messy if you if you don't have some sort of an intermediary, right? Exactly. Um, you have and, to do all this stuff with private keys and sending long secrets to each other and then it just gets weird. Um, so are you saying that I would then have like undo history and like, you know, crash recovery? So like if my browser crashes or my internet connection goes down or something like that and my session expires, I can come back and like pick up editing right where I left off kind of? Uh, you can even continue editing offline. Uh, YJS is offline first. So you could be uh, working locally. Um, you know, like right now, I'm in a relatively rural area. I have to go down to the, the local firehouse, the municipal building to, to have like a really solid internet connection for, for meetings like this. Um, so, you know, I, I could write at home, you know, sync up when I get online or if my, you know, weak internet connection comes in and out, I can still, you know, edit the document and it syncs as my connection rolls in. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, with, through track changes, you can see, you know, what, what I've added. Um, yeah. Or if your browser crashes, exactly. You can come back online. And so there's, there's tremendous, uh, fault tolerance undo. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Um, I'm reminded of a project that I think you can still download now. It, it appeared in the age of Google plus or Google wave. Google Plus. Google Plus is gone too. Um, in the age of Google Wave, and it was sort of like the open source answer to Google Wave, and it starts with an E, and now I'm, my my brain is blanking on what the actual editor is called. Oh, yeah. Etherpad? Etherpad. That's the one. So, so does this have anything in common with Etherpad or that you know of? I mean, there's definitely similar uh, parallels. There's a lot of different ways that you can implement this. Uh, most people choose to use an algorithm called operational transformation. And, and maybe uh, I don't want to get too much into the weeds here, but uh, Google Docs, for example, and, and Google Wave used operational, they, they use operational transformation. Uh, and there's pros and cons to that. Uh, I don't know that, that any either you know, is, is greater than the other. Uh, YGS uses this model uh, called CRDT, which is a conflict resolution data type. Uh, and we, we think it has uh, more advantages um, than, than the OT approach. So, but, but fundamentally it's, it's the same thing. It's tracking, you know, uh, enabling multiple people to make changes at the same time, just different algorithms as to how you do, you know, I start inserting words in the middle of uh, or letters in the middle of your word. Where do they go? You know, it, it, there's definitely some some crazy complexity under the hood, in in character by character or change by change, uh, uh, syncing this content and, and making it so that you don't end up with a jumbled mess at the end. That you end up with you know words that are readable. Um, and so, yeah. So, out outside of editing i think we talked about editing a little bit um and you know we've mentioned that the wordpress integration is available now so i'm sure that's something people might want to go check out but um 
have there been other applications considered or or tested beyond editing? So like one thing I'm thinking about is like live captioning during a during a live event, you know, like someone's speaking and you want to provide closed captions for people who are in, you know, obviously there's, you know, people that are hearing challenged, but there's also people that are in a noisy environment. Or in my case, I have a two-year-old and a six-month-old baby in my house. And doesn't matter how loud I turn up the volume, there are just some things you can't hear over crying children. So um, are, is there you talked about be having like view permission as well as edit permission. So is this something that I could like embed a widget on a web page theoretically, if I developed it, that would show, you know, what was being typed more or less in real time? Yeah, exactly. Um, there, uh, there's a company, uh, household name, I can't mention them, but they use it for uh, shared list building, you know, so let's say, you know, their application allows you to, among other things, have shared lists. Uh, so as you add an item to say a shared shopping list, I can see it and, and, uh, edit them together. You know, what's changed, what, you know, what I've knocked off and put in the cart, you know, so you don't pick it up elsewhere. Um, there is a, there's a really cool, it doesn't use YJS, but there's a really cool application called Descript, um, Descript.com that allows you to, uh, it uses AI to translate your podcast or video into text, and then mm. you can edit the text to edit your audio or video. Um, and it, it uses collaboration in that sense, uh, where you can see each other typing and that's essentially closed captioning, you know, that, that text becomes the closed caption. Um, and they're working on a real time component where like, you know, it, uh, it's showing you the, uh, the closed captioning as it translates it in real time and you could edit it in theory. That would be a great use case for this to drop that in. Um, we have yeah. a, a whiteboarding, uh, example. If you go to yjs.dev, there's a, a whiteboarding demo where you can uh, draw in, in conjunction with other people at real time. Um, and it's highly scalable. We've had 50 plus people collaborating in a document. Um, it scales better than Google Docs. That's one of the great things about CRDT over an operational and OT approach. Um, and you know, if you're at a large company like FFW or Acquia, and you have 200 people that are going to a conference uh, or looking at a company doc, uh, Google shifts into you know read-only mode for most people. Uh, there's definitely a thresholds at which um, it uh, has to change its you know its mechanism of operation. You can't collaborate, um, and and YJS is significantly more scalable. Um, it's also really great with very large documents. Like if you were writing a book, um, you know, it, it's much more efficient uh, than, than Google Docs on that front. Interesting. So, so one of the, you know, takeaways I just pulled out of what you said is that while we started out talking about, you know, collaborative editing of, let's say a document style format, I heard to-do lists, I heard whiteboards. So it sounds like the data model that this, you know, communicates in is pretty flexible, but, you know, probably for ind an individual application and, and, and open source, you would hope that there, there is sort of like an existing data format that you're going to use to communicate. So like, you know, you talked about WordPress Gutenberg, that's, that's a specific application, you know, adding different kinds of, of collaboration to WordPress Gutenberg is going to depend on on Gutenberg as much as it's going to depend on anything else, right? 
Exactly. Um, Gutenberg is really well uh, designed and architected, so it was uh, so much easier to integrate with it. Um, you know, than say an application that wasn't uh, you know built as 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 modern as as uh, Gutenberg or as well thought through. Uh, so that's definitely a big component. Uh, ultimately, it comes down to structured data. You know, um, YJS can work on any application with structured data. So uh, the, the original research concept it was a uh, 3D modeling. You know, so you you could work mm. in, in, a, in a in a you know whether you're building a VR world or manipulating some sort of 3D object with somebody. Um, you know, but yeah, it just comes down to structured data. You know, um, without that, um, it's it's you can't make it collaborative. Yeah, very cool. So, um, you know, outside of that, it does sound like though some of some of the things are are kind of things that you would want to be standardized. Like you talked about being able to see where people are typing, so that in, implies that there's a cursor or like a selection, you know, um, pointer of some sort, and then commenting like is annotation. That's that's a that's like a specific kind of a, a use case here too, right? So that annotations and and cursors are probably something that probably while they're just you can say it's just data. Like it, it sounds like there's also some some level there where like we have certain things that we use for specific purposes, right? Definitely. In order for you hit on the two main categories, uh, in order for a collaborative application to work. You need uh, presence and awareness, uh, and, and that's you know the the shared cursors, right? You need to see where I'm at in a document. You need that sort of contextual hint for us to be able to work together. That's not necessarily you know that's like sort of a UI thing or a UX thing. Um, you know, if I'm editing a piece of a document, you might want to be working somewhere else, or or maybe you're looking at my edits. And so there you know there's sort of a a human computer interface thing here that's facilitated by code. Um, but it, it takes the two to tango. Um, and so the presence and awareness capabilities are what enable you to effectively interact with and collaborate with other people, you know, in, in Slack or an instant message, it's, you know, was my message read? Um, you can see me typing. So you might hold back on, on typing your next line. You know, those are presence and awareness features that facilitate collaboration. Uh, and then the other aspect is, you know, uh, workflow. And so that's the, um, the inline comments. In order for us to edit and work on a document together, you know, we need to have some kind of workflow. Um, you know, you, you need to be able to see my changes, you know, through track changes and versioning. Uh, you need to be able to leave comments on uh, a change I've made or a section. You say, hey, maybe you want to address this, or I have a question about this that you might want to go into. Um, so those are sort of the editorial workflow features that enable you to do collaborative editing in a document in a, in a meaningful way. Uh, and you need those two capabilities together to have a, a viable system. Yeah, um, it definitely sounds like, you know, starting with an open source project um, is, is going to be a good way to go here because, like you say, there's some of those really, like, hard problems, you know, about collaborating that when you just say, well, all I have to do is just, you know, open a socket stream some bits into a into a server and then stream them back to the other person like that doesn't sound hard until you start thinking about you know how people have to interact and 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 along those lines so um definitely i'm i'm going to be checking out this project 
um, if only just to to see it work, you know, for myself. Um, and I think we could shift gears a little bit. So we t- we did mention um, you said uh, tag one. Tell me tell me the website one more time. <laughs> Uh, YJS, the letter Y, uh, js.dev is the open source project website. Uh, you can go to tag1.com slash YJS, and we have uh, lots of podcasts and, and conference presentations and blog posts if you're interested in learning more about it. Well, that's that's very cool. So really quickly, I think you wanted to mention another uh, project that you've been working on. Do you want to give us a high-level overview? What is Goose? Yeah, so uh, you know, as we talked to the, uh, at the top, uh, we're really well known for our performance and scalability work at TagOne, and uh, we do a lot of load testing and performance tuning. So we uh, we recently open sourced an internal framework that we have for for load testing uh, called Goose, and uh, it's built in Rust, uh, which is a, a, a very popular new. Uh, framework or, or uh, development language, uh, compiled language that focuses on things like uh, high concurrency. So it's really great for load testing. We've used, like many people, a lot of tools in the past for load testing. JMeter is a really popular one, uh, but it's uh, it's frustrating to work with, to say the least. Um, our, uh, our recent uh, love affair was with a tool called Locust, which is written in Python. Uh, and it's uh, it's really great. You know, Python is such an amazing and flexible and easy to work with language. And, and that's one of the reasons we love the Locust. Uh, if you think about a load test, it needs to simulate user behavior. Uh, you know, you got an e-commerce site. You're, uh, you're going through multiple steps. You're looking at products. You're putting products in your cart. You're checking out. You know, you need to, you know, to, to write all of these scripts and actions specific to, uh, you know, your client's website. Uh, you know, a, a library like Beautiful Soup in Python makes that really easy to integrate with Locust. But uh, as you really scale up, um, it's where, you know, Python, while Locust is an awesome program, Python is not really the best language to be writing a load test in. Uh, and so, you know, they've come up with ways to parallelize it um, and make it faster. But it often comes down to things like removing beautiful soup and doing everything in regular expressions to make it faster or, you know, spinning up lots of hardware to parallelize it. Um, and, um, you know, one of the projects we're working on right now, we're redoing the, the memcache module for Drupal. And, you know, as you can imagine, testing a caching system requires, a, 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 you know, let alone stress testing, it requires an insane amount of load, a lot of distributed load for that matter. So, um Goose is is perfect for that. You know, it's it's uh, way more scalable, way more efficient, um, and you know, it gave us an opportunity to sort of like uh, improve on some of the things of Locust that that we didn't like or that it was missing. Uh, keep the parts that we love, and and create a tool that that hopefully in aggregate is you know more performant, more scalable, with all the features you love and 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 many of the features you always wanted. Cool. So, you know, I mean, if, if someone's still kind of struggling with what this tool is good for and you not, not really, you know, performed your own load testing before, it's definitely something that comes up, I think in a lot of projects, but it's hard for people to understand like sort of the, the mechanics of how to do a good load test, you know, like there, there've been tools that for doing things like this 
as long as there have been web servers, right? Like Apache Bench is one of the sort of like most accessible tools that I can think of. But um, what what kinds of what kinds of information can you get out of a tool like Locust or like Goose? Do you you know do you get to like generate pretty graphs at the end, or you just sort of get a pile of data and then you're going to feed that into something on the on the back end? Like how does that work? Yeah, I mean, to step back a, a sec, you, you you just mentioned something that is really important to to reiterate, and that's you know, no matter how awesome your tool is, you you need to have a uh, an approach to load testing. Um, we did a talk at uh, the last DrupalCon about some work we did with Forio, which is a, a, a beauty brand, the uh, an online retailer, um, and it gives you a lot of sort of the best practices to doing load tests. You know, so one of the things, for example, is you want to test the same things over and over. And when you make changes, you want to make a change and then test your change. So like if you're doing load testing, um, you know, you might, you know, test the add to cart process, you know, and you want to be using that same test over and over throughout your iterations. And once you find a bottleneck, you want to remove that bottleneck and then do more testing. You know, it's like a scientific and and methodical approach uh, to the process, you know, so just, throwing load at a system isn't going to help you performance and, uh, you know, performance tune it. There's definitely a, a really important process to how you go about doing this. Um, and then there's the data that comes out of it. Um, you know, Locust has some great uh, graphing and reporting tools. Uh, Rust isn't there yet. That's definitely something that we want to add in the future. Uh, both of them provide you with uh, structured data dumps that you can work on. Um, one of the additions that we added to Goose is that we we break it down a little bit more granularly than Locust does. So we we you know we, we continue to give you sort of aggregate reports, uh, but we give you uh, aggregate reports by say request type or or test type, as well as the individual data. So you can dig into a little bit more uh, and and see uh, what's going on. So for example, um, you know you might start to see failures uh, at load. Uh, doing certain actions, uh, and 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 that will give you insight into where your problem might be. Um, but it's not just the you know it's not just the the locust or um, goose logs that help you. You need to be looking at all of your systems. You know your your telemetry. You know um, whether it's New Relic, your server logs, top on your on your Linux machines. Um, you know you need to be monitoring all of these things during your load tests uh, in order to triangulate where your problems might be. Right. Yeah. I mean, to go, to kind of go back to what you were saying at sort of the beginning of this little section, like if you, if you ask me, you know, like what's the performance of our website? And I tell you seven, you're like, okay, seven, is that good or bad? You know? And then a year later we do another load test. What's the performance of our website? 7.1. Oh my gosh, it's slower. How could that possibly have happened? You know, it's really hard to answer that question, right? So if you if you get a tool like this set up, then the ideal thing to do would be, I would say probably at the very least, if you if you're working in two week sprints or two three week sprints or whatever it happens to be, then you should at the very least be testing it every two weeks, right? Is that kind of would a best practice. For sure. I mean, uh, every change you make to your application is going to have an impact on your performance profile. Um, 
one of the things that we do with our clients where performance and scalability is critical, you know, there, there's clear uh, proven statistics, you know, for every, you know, fraction of a second, your site is slower, your conversion rates drop by X percent, uh, you know, your page views drop by X percent. And so, um, you know, if you're an online retailer dealing with millions or hundreds of millions of dollars, small percentages can have a material impact on your revenue. So, you know, if uh, one of the things we did for Forio, for example, is we integrated performance and scalability testing into their DevOps tool chain so that uh, every time they do a release, uh, they can run it optionally on code commits, but prior to release, um, they do performance and scalability uh, testing, you know, or if they're making a big change, you know, they'll, they'll test that commit and it'll accept or reject the, the commits based on, you know, the acceptable performance threshold. Uh, so, you know, they, they want to make sure that with every release, they're at, you know, at worst maintaining their performance, if not improving it, certainly, you know, not making it worse, which can have an impact. And so, um, you know, you want to, have, like, unfortunately, a lot of our clients come to us first when there is an emergency, you know, their site is down, <laughs> uh, you know, they're losing a lot of money. Uh, and, you know, um, oftentimes these things are taken for granted until it becomes a problem. So being, you know, proactive about it and handling it in the way that you mentioned is, is really important. You know, you, you don't want it to come to the point where your site is down. You want to be dealing with this all the time uh, to make sure. It, and and I, I can't tell you the number of projects I've worked on where there's been a person who is at least as part of their time dedicated to analytics. So, and a lot of times that that role is seen as like a marketing role. Like we're gonna watch the search engine traffic and the keyword performance and the ad clicks and you know the conversion rates. And you ask that person about performance and they get a glassy eyed stare. And I feel like if anybody is gonna be paying attention to this, I mean, I think it's everybody's responsibility probably, but um, if you have one person who's like gonna wanna read the tea leaves and tell you when, you know, the smoke is appearing that that could be a good person to go to and say, we're going to make it your job to, to care about this number, you know? Um, and maybe there's other ways to do that too, of like integrating this into your already existing team. But, um, I think that's probably one, one thing that would fall by the wayside is just like, well, we could just give, you know, this person yet another thing to worry about and like, Oh, oh yeah, that's, that's the operations person's problem, you know? Let's let, let let them deal with it. But like a lot of times that analytics person is is doing some sort of like a roll up report that other people get to see. And if they're not caring about page performance or, you know, the total amount of time it takes to do a certain heavy operation, like maybe they should be. Yeah, that's a, that's a great idea. I mean, I, I believe in, in, in checks and balances and automation. So, you know, uh, the checks and balances, uh, you know, whoever is doing your code reviews, uh, you know, your release manager. There are people that, you know, before th your your code and your changes go live, it should be their responsibility to uh, to worry about things like security, performance, and scalability. Uh, and you can introduce, you know, automation. That's why we have DevOps tool chains to kind of enforce these policies and procedures and, and make it easy. Um, but you also want uh, what you described. You want someone who's looking at the high level. You want someone who's doing reporting and understanding the impact on the end user and how this behavior 
uh, impacts the organization. You know, are our conversion rates dropping? Is our, you know, revenue decreasing as a result of a change? Um, you know, that's one of the amazing things about web development and building applications online is, you know, if you, if you make the time to look into the data and you take a, a thoughtful and scientific approach to things, you can really tweak and manage and optimize the outcome of, of what you're doing. And I, you know, I would, you know, I feel like, you know, like what you said, too many people build applications and then neglect that component or, you know, and, you know, we only have so much time, money and resources, of course, but that's a really important part. You know, you make this big investment in building an application and then you leave tremendous value on the table uh, as far as, you know, usage uh, that, that really needs to be accounted for. Okay. So um, the project is called Goose and um, is that sort of named after an animal or a fighter pilot or do we know? <laughs> Top Gun. I love it. I, I hadn't thought about that. Uh, now I got the theme song stuck in my head. Uh, and I think. They're, uh, they're doing a remake of Top Gun, I read. I don't know. Oh, interesting. But, yeah. Um, now, now Tom Cruise is, gets to be the washed up like instructor anyway. <laughs> no doubt. Um, I think, uh, it, well, I know, it's, it's named after the animal. I don't know if he, uh, as a kid, I, you know, at, at a park, uh, I, you know, I was feeding the, the goose's bread. Uh, and and they can be like really nasty animals. I don't know if you've ever seen a goose attack, <laughs> um, but and and that's actually uh, the command to run a load test uh, is named goose attack. <laughs> uh, oh, okay. And, and so that's what it's named. Uh, you know, and, and you can have a, a gaggle. You can have a, a lot of distributed instances of goose running to you know distribute your load around the world and and test things of that nature, or to get an even higher degree of concurrency. Um, so it, it's, it's about the animal, uh, and you have, yeah. Okay. That also, that also makes me understand locust. Now I just was seeing it as a word before, but now locust also makes sense. And, and why would you name it goose? It's, it's a similar sort of like swarming activity, right? It's an homage. Exactly. Uh, lo yeah. Locust, uh, you, uh, to parallelize it, you create a locust swarm. Okay, and where can we find more information about Goose? And and I think you also said when you go to that page, there's just some general information too about you know this uh, performance monitoring and load testing and best practices and maybe some DrupalCon presentations that we could check out as well. Yeah, uh, go to tagone.com/goose, uh, G-O-O-S-E, like the animal, and uh, I'll I'll update it to include a link to the uh, presentation I mentioned so you can get the most out of your load testing, uh, regardless of what tool you're using. And uh, we'll link to the code. And uh, we, uh, we have some uh, examples that you can use to get up and running writing load tests. Uh, and uh, you know, we plan to build on all this. We, we just released it. It's, uh, it's like an alpha at this point, uh, but it's, you know, it's being used in production on, on things like memcache load testing. And uh, we'll continue to, to build out that page of resources uh, examples and, and, you know, templates that you can use to hopefully make writing your load tests easier. Um, and, and then to get the most out of it with the, the process and methodology. Very good. Well, Michael, I have to say, uh, for somebody who's recording outside of a fire station, this was pretty uneventful recording. So 
Thank, thank you for joining us here on the Drupal Easy Podcast. Would you would you like to uh, give anyone like your social media profiles or any any place else that you want them to go and check out before we go? Yeah, Ryan, thank you so much for having me. Uh, you've done hundreds of these. Uh, it's it's amazing what you've done for the community. So thank you and thank you for having me on it. Uh, my username uh, everywhere is Michael E Myers, uh, M E Y E R S. You find me on Drupal, Twitter, LinkedIn. Uh, etc. So uh, everywhere slash Michael E. Myers. Excellent. And we will be back with more Drupal Easy podcast in just a minute. Before we get to my interview with Dane Powell about Aquia BLT, I do want to make an announcement that I will be teaching a online Composer Basics for Drupal Developers Workshop. It's seven hours, so we're going to split it up over two afternoons on Monday, June 15th from 1.30 to 5 p.m. Eastern Time here in the U.S. And part two is Tuesday, June 16th, same time, 1.30 to 5 p.m. Eastern here in the U.S. And this workshop covers basically the fundamentals of Composer. So we actually go through using Composer without Drupal, gasp, I know, in order to learn the fundamentals and kind of see what's going on under the hood on a very simple project just to understand what Composer is really doing. And then part two focuses on the Drupal integration with Composer. And we're going to dive into the Drupal recommended project Composer template, the new really freaking cool scaffolding plugin that's part of Drupal core. Um, we're going to do an example of converting an existing code base from the old Drupal Composer, Drupal Project Composer template to the new core template. And we'll also do an example of managing code conflicts when you uh, try and merge or rebase two divergent branches that both have Composer-based changes. So I'm really excited about this workshop. I have been giving it in one form or another um, for about a year now, um, and I finally built up the curriculum where it's kind of a standalone one-day workshop, and I'm super excited about it. So you can go to drupaleasy.com slash composer-basics. That's drupaleasy.com slash composer-basics, and sign up for Composer Basics for Drupal developers. All right, let's listen in as I interview Dane Powell. <laughs> I am here with Dane Powell, a principal software engineer at Acquia. And Dane, is it fair to say that you are like one of the lead developers, lead maintainers of Acquia BLT? What would you describe your role in relation to BLT? Uh, yeah, I think that's fair. Um, founder, creator, co-creator, uh, and maintainer. All right. So all of the above. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And BLT does not stand for bacon, lettuce, and tomato. No, no. Although it does make me hungry, uh, even still, every time I hear it. But uh, no, it, it, it's, it's it's actually a retronym for uh, build and launch tools. A retronym? What is retro? What is that? Yeah. Mean, so just, just like a PHP itself, I guess I understand. Um, I, I don't know what it stood for originally, and now it stands for um, something else. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, it's like the recursive acronym PHP. Yeah, maybe maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. So, so BLT went through the same process. It was called uh, 
something else at first, and uh, we it went through a few iterations, and uh, we had to drop a vowel uh, because it was called Bolt before, and it turned out there was another product on the market called Bolt, and so it became BLT. Okay, so let's let's start at the beginning. Um, what is Acquia BLT? Yeah, so uh, BLT is uh, at its at its core, it's an automation framework. Um, that aims to make your life easier as a developer when you're working with Drupal. So it, it makes a lot of strong assumptions about uh, best practice workflows and tools and things like that, and, and really tries to glue all those tools and processes together for you to, to make things really streamlined. So what does that mean um, specifically? It's, uh, it's a few things. It's a project template. So like when you're uh, when you're starting a new project, um, it gives you out of the box uh, a distribution with all the settings directories where they need to be, and the config directories where they need to be, um, and everything else ready to go, right? According to what we think are kind of best practices for new Drupal projects. Um, it also has recipes. So, like, let's say that you use Travis CI or GitLab or uh, Acquia Pipelines or any number of other services. Um, with one command in BLT, you can set up integration with those services using uh, default templates and, and settings files. Um, it's an automation framework, like I mentioned. So it uh, has commands to automate really common tasks like installing Drupal and then importing configuration and then running database updates all as part of a single command. Yeah, you I want to get to that stuff in a couple of minutes for sure. Because that's one of the things I found pretty interesting. Um, I guess it's fair to say that a lot of what BLT is is focused on the developer workflow um, from almost like a code and testing standpoint and not from a Drupal application um, workflow. Like this isn't about creating views or, or, or things like that, but this is more like from a developer workflow standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it does it does live on production sites because it, it does things like managing your uh, config split settings, but but it is ultimately a developer focused tool. It is it's there to make your life easier as a developer. All right. So you also you just mentioned it. It also provides a good starting point. So um, I'm you know I teach Drupal a lot, so I talk about the Drupal recommended project composer template a lot. So does BLT start with a version of that, or is there a relationship between BLT and um, one of the official Composer templates? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it, that answer actually changes between BLT 11 and 12. So uh, just so you know, BLT 11 came out six months ago, and, and we have a six-month release cycle for major versions. BLT 12 will support Drupal 9. That's coming out next week. Um, in BLT 11, which is the current version, uh, we have our own project template. It's not related to the the core, um, you know, recommended templates or anything like that. Although it does follow many of the same best practices. Um, and then in BLT 12, we actually took a different approach. Um, we no longer provide that project template for you. We actually let you come in with anything you want, including the Drupal core recommended template. Or if you'd rather start with Lightning, or if you'd rather start with Commerce, or whatever you want, you can bring it and you can add BLT just like a normal Composer project. Right. So, so BLT is starting with the next version. Which what when does that come out exactly? Uh, next there, week. Next week. Okay. So it coincides with with Drupal nine. It sounds exactly. like. Exactly. Um, 
if you want to kind of BLT a size your project, you basically just have to do a composer require on, on, on BLT and that will bring in all the BLT goodness. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. For BLT 12, that's exactly right. Um, unfortunately for BLT 11, it, it made a lot of assumptions in how your project was structured as far as like where the doc root is, where the bin directory is, where the settings files live. Um, that's why with BLT 11 and before we had to give you that project template out of the box and you had to start with that. Uh, but BLT 12 has a lot more logic and it's a lot more flexible to, to let it work with any distribution. Um, I want to ask you about production artifacts and I'm not sure yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to let you kind of guide the conversation here. Cause I'm not sure the best way to approach this because I know that as part of this discussion, we need to talk about the BLT command line tool. You know, there are a bunch of, you know, BLT functions or BLT command line, um, uh, um, functions that are the way I kind of understand them, you know, coming to this kind of fresh is it seems like they're almost like macros, right? It's, you, you, you make a B, you, you call a BLT um, call and that actually does two or three, maybe Git, Composer, other things behind, you know, in the, in the background while that's running. Um, so ultimately, so I'm going to let you kind of describe that process, but ultimately what I find most interesting about this is, that you can set up your project so that dependencies are not committed in the main repository, but then somehow magically, and this is what I'm hoping to get like a nice overview <laughs> uh, for you, somehow magically you run a BLT command and then you get a production artifact in a separate, like a new separate directory of your site. And then I guess it sounds, you know, I would assume at this point, then when you push that repository up and you pull it into your production environment, you are, you know, your production environment is only looking at that kind of artifact directory. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, wow. Okay. Well, that's, that was completely <laughs> you right. Got it. Right. You got all that right. But yeah. You don't, you don't need me. So <laughs> you can roll, roll credits. Uh, yeah. Okay. So yeah, no, absolutely. And this, this is, I think what confuses people more than anything else um, about BLT, especially if they're coming from, I, I think, you know, more traditional, like, Drupal 7 background. Um, and in Drupal 8, you know, the reason BLT exists is because we had to figure all this stuff out for ourselves. Like there, as Acquia, there was no best practice anywhere for Drupal 8 about how to um, deploy code when you have a composer-based site. And so that's what BLT tries to prescribe. And you're exactly right. So we, we think the best way to deploy Drupal 8 and composer code bases is with build artifacts. And so what that means is like, like you said, in your source repository on, on say GitHub or GitLab or wherever you have it, um, it's very, very streamlined, very, very minimal. So you have your composer.json, you have your settings files, um, and you have your configuration and any custom modules and that's it. There's no uh, contributed modules. There's no vendor directory. There's not even uh, like dockroot slash index.php. Um, if you're using the latest version of everything. Um, and that's great for developers because it's very easy to get the repo and clone it quickly and make changes. And you don't have to look at all that cruft and keep it all in sync. But obviously, when you deploy it, you need to bring all that back. Um, so what BLT does, if you run BLT deploy, is uh, like you said, it creates a directory in your repo called deploy um, that is ignored by Git. 
and it does a com uh, production composer install. So it excludes all of your testing dependencies and everything you would not want in a production environment. And then it copies over all your settings files, all your custom modules, everything like that. Um, it tweaks your gitignore files so that all the contributed stuff then gets committed. And then that, that gets pushed out to your cloud repository, whether that's on Acquia or Pantheon or wherever you're, you're hosting your code. And uh, again, so you have your source repo with very, very streamlined, very minimal. And you have your build artifact or your production repository, which does have the vendor directory and contributed modules and everything else. So it ends up being um, a two repository system. Exactly, exactly. You have one repository that's called like the developer repository where dependencies are not committed. And that's where kind of the everyday developer work happens. Um, but then you have the other kind of like, let's call it just for lack of a better word, like the, the hosting repository. And like you said, maybe that's like Acquia Cloud. So you configure all that, I guess, at the beginning of the project. And developers do that th do their thing. And then when you're at the point where, hey, we want to push these changes out to production, you run this BLT deploy command. And it, like you said, it does all the Git stuff. It you know makes the commit. It builds the, the artifact. It makes a commit. And, he put, and it pushes that not to the develop repository, but to the production repository. Exactly. So, what, so that deploy command, that's kind of like one of those macro commands that I've, you know, because I, you know, I used to write Excel macros and whatever. So that word's that word kind of fits for this. But that it sounds like that is, like you said, that's doing some Git stuff. That's doing some just basic file, you know, directory manipulation stuff. Um, that's running a comp that's running Composer. Is there anything else that's going on with that? Is it running yeah. Drupal? Like, is there any? I guess there really isn't any configuration system stuff going on there. Uh, not really configuration stuff during the deployment, but BLT has an internal configuration and hook system, much like Drupal, you know, had, used to used to mainly have hooks. Um, and uh, so you can you can add a lot to that. So out of the box, like I said, it runs Composer install always, and and it copies over your settings and files and stuff like that. Um, but then you can add on to that really easily. So let's say that you use uh, SAS or LESS or whatever the latest, greatest uh, you know, NPM packages to compile your CSS. Um, you, can, you can hook that into the build process. So you can actually build your production CSS assets or JS assets as part of the deploy um, and add them to the build artifact. So is that configuration, is that like all in YAML files or something like that or JSON or like what's that look like? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it is a YAML file. So uh, when you install BLT, it creates a, a BLT directory in your uh, repo root. And in there are a few YAML files you can use to configure it. So um, in this case, you just you define one line. I, it's, uh, I, can't, I think it's called like target hooks or something. Um, and you just define a hook that runs a build script as part of the deploy. So it's really, really user friendly. So another um, noun that I saw pop up as I was reading about this this BLT deploy command that I want to ask you about, and I think I understand it, but just in case I don't, um, is sanitized. Mm, yeah. So that during the deploy, you can you get like a sanitized artifact. So exactly what does that mean? Yeah. 
so that's really cool too. Uh, so there there are a lot of things in your uh, repository that you, you may not want in a production environment. So things like change logs, uh, readmes, um, demo files, test scripts, things like that. Um, things that could be a you know a security vulnerability or at least would set off like a security scanner. Um, those things BLT can automatically remove for you, and that's that's something else that you can extend if there's there's other things you want to get rid of for deploys. So this is kind of a way of because you know kind of the issue that a lot of folks have right now who host on um, uh, infrastructure that does not support running Composer install, right? So so a lot of folks who use a single repository model are forced to then commit dependencies because you know when when it, when they push and it gets pulled into wherever they're hosting you can't run composer install so you need everything there so this seems like a solution for that problem that you know you can still use your same hosting regardless of whether or not it supports composer and really once you learn the various blt commands the only additional and i'm going to say real i'm putting air quotes again around real the only real additional complexity is that second repository. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And uh, you know, even Acquia Cloud, you, you cannot run Composer install um, typically in an Acquia Cloud environment. And and you, you might at first think, you know, why is that? Um, but from a security perspective, that's actually desirable. Like you you don't really want people to be able to change. Um, Files on disk in a production environment, and so that's that's what this allows you to to support. Yeah, and and you also you actually can do it all with a single repository if you want, and you can just separate it with branches. So for instance, you can have a master branch and a master dash build branch. So only master dash build would have all the vendor assets and everything, um, and that still gets you some of the advantages. Although obviously you you get a pretty <laughs> pretty giant repository um, yeah. over time. I mean, that, that's definitely a, a much more, maybe not much more, but a more complex repository. Sure. Because if you have, because it seems like in each branch, um, there would have to be different .git ignores. Like you would never have the same .git ignore in both branches. Yeah, exactly. So that seems like it's a, it's a, it's a different type of complexity. Sure. Um, and these days, I think, you know, enough developers are comfortable using GitLab or GitHub um, where it seems like a fairly low barrier of entry to say, okay, well, we're going to use, you know, a private GitHub repo for our developer branch, but when we use BLT, we're going to deploy to Acquia Cloud. Yeah, exactly. And you know, for individuals, I think GitHub just made private repos free, right? And so there, there should be very little barrier barrier to entry there. And the way Acquia looks at it is it look, you know, at least right now, uh, the developer workflow. I mean. Like you know, being able to fork and create pull requests and do all the amazing things that like GitHub or GitLab allow you to do, um, that's that's not like what we want to be supporting right now. Like we, you know, GitHub does that well, and we want we want to let people bring their own preferred service to Acquia, and and so again, BLT is what glues those two things together. Yeah, I gotta say, I was um, I was pleasantly surprised when I started really digging into this that this is not a you know it, it's it's an Acquia name, Acquia BLT, but it's not tied to Acquia hosting, which I think a lot of people kind of assume that it is until you find out that it's not. 
<laughs> yeah, no, you, you're absolutely right. Like we we want everybody to use it regardless of whether they're on Aquia or not. Um, and in fact, people have made plugins for Pantheon and uh, like a whole a whole host of other services that um, that we never even dreamed of supporting. So we love that. Great. All right. I have two more kind of general areas I want to touch on about BLT before we wrap this up. Um, and this kind of goes back to, you know, my idea that there's this BLT command line and it, for the most part, or partly it feels like, or as I was reading about, it feels like it's, they're basically macro commands. Um, but when you're doing development and you're, when you're doing your day-to-day -day development, um, it seems like there are some BLT commands that you're going to use instead of, you know, maybe some Git commands or maybe some composer commands. And I just, I didn't have a really good feel for how much of the developer workflow becomes running BLT commands as opposed to, you know, traditional Git composer commands. Yeah, boy. And you've really hit on something there. So that, that is a, um, uh, you know, sort of a paradox that, that we face as well when we, when we were building BLT because, um, you know, we want a minute, we want people to to use the tools that they're comfortable with. We don't want to force you to use BLT if if you could just run, let's say, Lando or Drupal VM or um, Drupal, you know, Drush commands directly. So in most cases, you can still use those underlying tools. You don't have to involve BLT. Um, but for, I, I'd say mainly for setting up the site, you want to run BLT setup. Uh, for syncing files, you run to run BLT sync. And then for deploys, you run want to run BLT deploy. But that's pretty much it. Any other time, you can just use those underlying commands. You can use Composer and Drush and everything else like you always have. We're not going to stop you. So when you say syncing files, you're talking about syncing files down from a remote host, like literally the files directory or something else? Yeah. So actually, yeah, if you run BLT sync, uh, well, actually, let me step back. So if you think about how you can um, set up a site locally, generally there's two approaches. You can either install it from scratch and import configuration, or you can pull a database from your uh, remote environment along with files and stuff like that. So BLT setup by default um, installs from scratch and imports configuration versus BLT sync um, will actually go out and pull your database, pull your files, um, run updates and stuff like that. And then when you talk about folks have written plugins like for Pantheon, I would assume like there's like a, you know, a sync plugin for different hosts. Yeah, there could be. Actually, I, I don't I don't know. that uh, For Aquia, that's all based around Drush and like Drush rsync and uh, SQL sync. So theoretically, that would work anywhere, I think. All right. You, you mentioned something a few minutes ago that I, I just jotted a note down, and I want to circle back to it real quick. Um, that BLT can help with your config splits. Yeah. <laughs> so what does that look like? Yeah, so I, I listened to the last episode where you uh, you were talking about BLT and also um, you were talking about config split a little bit. So, you, and you mentioned that, you know, one of the things you had to do was write some boilerplate code that would examine your environment and then turn on the correct split for that environment. Um, and so that's one of the things that BLT does out of the box. Yeah, so it, it actually has something called the environment detector, and it can figure out if it's running in development or production or CI or locally, and it can it can turn on the correct split automatically. Now, of course, that depends on the splits being named in a sort of predictable way um, and the environments being named predictably, but 
you know, if that doesn't work out of the box for whatever reason, again, you can extend that and you can you can override the environment detector and and tell it, you know, what those environments should be. Right. All right. Very good. Um, all right. So then the last area I want to touch on here is it seems like it was originally BLT was originally designed to work with Drupal VM. Um, but it works with, you know, uh, you know, I'll name, I'll, I'll name Lando and DDEV and Doxel, mm-hmm. um, you know, and there, there's some integration there. Maybe, I don't know, are there plugins there or what is the, <laughs> like what needs to happen in order for this to be able to work with a, you know, someone's local environment? So BLT is really agnostic to your uh, hosting environment, whether that's locally or remotely, um, it, it doesn't really care because it doesn't interact that much with your web server or anything like that. Um, all of its interactions are via Drush and, and Drush aliases. And um, and so you can run it inside a Lando container or on a LAMP stack or whatever you want. It doesn't really care. What it does provide, though, is recipes to help set up those services. So uh, in BLT 11, you could run the BLT VM command, and that would create a Docker, or sorry, a, a Drupal VM environment in that repository for you to use. And it would be configured um, in what we consider to be sort of the best practice for, for composer-based projects. And I know people have also created plugins for, I think, Doxol and DDEV and Lando and probably others. Um, so that's great. And then actually in BLT 12, we took out that BLVM, BLT VM command because, or we moved it to a plugin because again, like we, we don't want to foist anything on anybody. Like we don't want to tell anybody what environment to use. And everybody has a lot of strong opinions about <laughs> what their preferred environment is. So we say, Hey, bring your own, like bring whatever environment you want. BLT will work with it. And in a lot of cases, there are actually dedicated plugins to support those. All right, very good. So I am going to put some things in the show notes. I'm going to put the official BLT documentation page. Um, you sent me a link to a YouTube video, um, which I thought was pretty good, uh, which is really all about BLT deploy for the most part. Um, then there's also an, uh, an Aqua BLT plugins page, which I think um, will have links to a lot of the things that, that we've just talked about. Um, and then there's also going to be some links that were written um, both by folks at Acquia and other places about using BLT with DDEV, Lando, and Doxel. Um, and I will say none of them are like super recent in the past year or so. Um, but you and I in our email exchange, um, it sounds like that type of stuff is probably still relevant. But I, I do want to mention that. You know, go to the, you know, if if you have any questions, you know, check out the official documentation first. And is there like a Slack workspace or a Slack channel where folks using BLT congregate and ask questions? Yeah, definitely. So actually in Drupal Slack, um, there is a BLT channel and uh, I hang out there occasionally and lots of folks hang out there. Um, the nice thing is there's a ton of community support around BLT. Usually someone else answers a question before I can even get to it, which is awesome. Um and if that fails, obviously there's the uh, the GitHub issue queue, so you're welcome to file an issue uh, or a pull request there. Right, and so yeah, that's you know I always like to you know kind of have a hierarchy. So if I have an, if I have a question or a problem, is the first place I should go that Slack workspace, or is there like a, a Stack Exchange topic or? Yeah, I, th- I think I think Slack is a great place to start. Um, 
if you if you know that you have a, a specific bug or a specific feature request, go ahead and put it in GitHub. But if you don't know where to start, come to Slack and somebody will will point the way. All right, fantastic. And um, since you mentioned it, then with the new release coming next week, it sounds like the the kind of at least one of the big features, again, air quotes, I guess, for the new release of BLT is the fact that you can add it as a dependency to virtually any existing project. Is that kind of like the 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 marquee feature for this release? Yeah, that's definitely the biggest one. Um, but also there's a lot of other big changes. And actually, if you uh, go to GitHub and look at the release notes, uh, there's a link to a, a, a page on the upgrade experience and kind of what's different in BLT 12. Um, definitely check that out. But the other big change we made was to uh, drastically reduce the number of composer dependencies. So uh, in the past, people would um, would have sometimes, you know, they try to upgrade Drupal and it would conflict with some other dependency in BLT. We've really tried to minimize that in BLT Great. 12. All right. Well, um, Dane, thanks so much for all this information. This is great. Um, uh, I think there's a lot of good information to get out there because I think in just talking to like colleagues and, and folks I work with, um, everyone kind of is a little, has, at least the people I know have been a little bit hazy on exactly what BLT is, where it fits in. I know the one thing we talked about, how it's not tied to Acquia Cloud Hosting, that is something that a lot of folks don't realize. So um, hopefully we educated a lot of people about BLT and um, you know a lot more people will start using it. Yeah, definitely. I'm, and I'm always happy to help. And, uh, and if I could just uh, plug one more thing, if, if people enjoy BLT, um, we're about to release uh, two new products. Um, one is Acquia CLI, which is going to be totally open source, Symfony-based, um, and it should be very familiar to anybody who's developed with Drupal. And it's basically the unified way to interact with Acquia products and services via the command line. So it doesn't replace BLT. It, it just it supplements it and it works alongside it. Um, and the other thing I think people might really enjoy if, if they uh, are interested in BLT are remote IDEs. Um, so again, if you don't want to go through that trouble of setting up your uh, Drupal VM or Lando or what have you, you want to have a persistent development environment in the cloud, um, remote IDEs are, are super helpful for that as well. Yeah, I'll be honest, I still have to be convinced that that's a good idea. <laughs> I, I might be a little bit old school, but I am so, I believe so much in having a disposable local environment. Um, I understand kind of the, the the goal and the dream of having the remote uh, development environment. Um, I think for me and probably for others, there's, and again, I don't know if it's just because, you know, I've been around for so long. Um, seems like there, there's some convincing for me would need to be done, but I, I'm more than, than curious to see what that looks like. Yeah, and I, I I totally hear you. I'm also, I mean, I'm I'm an old school developer, and I I love you know all my dot files and everything. Um, but you know, when I started working on this project a few months ago, I I had to be convinced, and I was convinced, and all right, well, I'll never go back. <laughs> wow. Okay. Now now yeah. you've really got me interested. And what's that going to be? Is that uh, like an Acquia thing? Yeah, yeah. It's Acquia Remote IDEs. Um, okay. Uh, the name may change. Uh, but, right, well, uh, well, we'll be on the lookout for it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, when that comes out, you know, let me know or, or ping me. And if you want to come on the, the podcast and talk about it, or if there's someone who's who's more familiar with it than you, just, you know, be interested to learn more about it. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, thanks a lot for your time, Dane. Much appreciated. And uh, good luck with the future releases of BLT. Yeah, thanks a lot. You too. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. 
after that interview completed, Dane did email me to make a one small correction. And it's a correction that we want to hear. It's that the Acquia remote IDEs that we discussed towards the end of that interview are actually now available. So just recapping some Drupal Easy news, the brand new Composer Basics for Drupal Developers online workshop is Monday, June 15th, that's part one, and Tuesday, June 16th, that's part two. You can sign up at drupaleasy.com slash composer-basics. I will be doing yet another professional local development with DDEV two-hour online workshop that is on Tuesday, July 7th. You can get more information about that at drupaleasy.com slash ddev. And of course, our flagship training program, Drupal Career Online. The next semester begins August 31st. You can get more information about that at drupaleasy.com slash dco for Drupal Career Online. My thanks go out to Ryan Price and Michael Myers for their fabulous interview. And I can't wait to see what develops with YJS. That is a really, really cool stuff. And of course, Dane Powell for his time to talk to me about Acquia BLT. So thank you very much for listening. And I will speak to you on the next Drupal Easy podcast.